Thank you, Ashley and Megan, for fitting worship this morning. And thank you all in advance for your patience. I am humbled to be here and to serve this morning. And thank you for your testimony, Skipper. In, in his absence, I'd like to start this morning by honouring my father-in-law, who on Thursday said something to me that was very encouraging in, in a way. He said, Graham, he said this to me on Thursday, he said, Graham, I'm not remotely worried about your preaching on Sunday. He said, I'm not worried about it. I said, oh. That's, that's great, John. Why is that? Why are you not worried about my preaching on Sunday? He said, the best thing about your preaching on Sunday, Graham, is that you will not be in control of any of it. And I felt, I felt you know, and I felt, and I felt oddly comforted by that. And I hope that, I hope that you will too. Psalm 50, a psalm of Asaph, the mighty one, God the Lord, speaks and summons the earth from the rising of the sun to the place where it sets. From Zion, perfect in beauty, God shines forth. Our God comes and will not be silent. A fire devours before him and around him a tempest rages. He summons the heavens above and the earth that he may judge. His people gather to me my consecrated ones who made a covenant with me by sacrifice, and the heavens proclaim his righteousness, for God himself is judge, Salah. Hear, all my people, and I will speak, O Israel, and I will, te- I will testify against you. I am God, your God. I do not rebuke you for your sacrifices or your burnt offerings, which are ever before me. I have no need of a bull, from your stall or of goats from your pens. For every animal of the forest is mine and a cattle on a thousand hills. I know every bird in the mountains and the creatures of the field are mine. If I I were hungry, I would not tell you for the world is mine and all that is in it. Do I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? Sacrifice Thank offerings to God, fulfill your vows to the Most High. And call on me in the day of trouble, and I will deliver you, and you will honor me. But to the wicked, God says, what right have you to recite my laws? Or take my covenant on your lips. You hate, you hate my instruction and cast my words behind you. When you see a thief, you join with him. You throw in your lot with adulterers. You use your mouth for evil and harness your tongue to deceit. You speak continually against your brother and slander your own mother's son. These things you have done, and I kept silent. You thought, you thought I was altogether like you, but I but I will rebuke you and accuse you to your face. Consider Consider this, you who forget God. 
or I will tear you to pieces with none to rescue. He who, sac he who sacrifices thank offerings honors me, and he prepares the way so that I may show him the salvation of God. Can I, can I just have a little sip of water? Would somebody please be able to produce water, please? Thank you so much. Amongst the Psalms and deep, you're a good man, thank you so much. Thank you. Amongst the Psalms and deep in the heart of God's words, Psalm 50 stands out. The design, the design of the design of Psalm 50 was for it to be sung to worshippers by a choir. It is instructional in nature, and it was written by Asaph as a how-to guide, as a manual for how we should worship, how we serve, how we sacrifice, and how we can be ready. A key part of this instruction concerns our relationship with God and the places where we find the beginnings of right relationship. The places where we find the beginnings of relationship and worship that is pleasing to him. God says what he does not want from us in relationship and points to the sorts of mistakes we make. And he also says what he does want from us. God uses Psalm 50 to tell us about what is pleasing to him and how we can please him in worship and in relationship. I shall focus on what God says about what he desires in worship and worshippers that is pleasing to him. He is clear about what good worship looks like, and he is clear about the place where right relationship with him begins. I hope that this does not sound vague, but the point of much of this psalm, I believe, is the way in which God stresses the fact that for him, and therefore for us, he must be completely satisfied that before anything else can happen, in relationship with him, before we can even enter into relationship with him, and before we can even begin to follow him, it is of paramount importance first that our hearts are absolutely in the right place. In a place of humility and in a place that at times for some of us can even look like a place of wretchedness. We must recognize and accept our sin and our sinfulness. The reader will see that Psalm 50 concludes with a hint at the path to salvation. And I wonder if the author of Psalm 50 can ever, could ever have imagined what was to come, and perhaps we will see a glimpse of this today. This is not a practical workshop, and there will be no advice given, if ever I could, on what to do or how to do it for his kingdom. Service, I believe, for many of us, of course, is a central theme in our walk with Christ and in our desire to follow our God. 
service is something that we hear a lot about and quite rightly so. How do we serve? What is service? How much do we serve? What constitutes commanded work? What constitutes a waste of time? What do we say yes to and what do we say no to? God gives us some crucial pointers in Psalm 50. He does not detail exactly who should serve or how or in what way. This psalm isn't designed to answer our questions about whether or not we should help with Sunday school or perhaps volunteer to assist in a particular job or something like that. Psalm 50 is much more first and foremost about us understanding something of right relationship with God in service and is much more about making sure that we first understand everything that we that we receive that we receive from him that we receive from service of him before God can permit us to serve him before God will allow us the blessing of serving or even of following him for to serve him and to be in relationship with him is to receive blessing as and of itself. In God's how to guide worship, he first asserts that one of the most important things that we must understand about our service of his kingdom is that he doesn't need it. And God stresses and emphasizes this point for us. God does not needs our service. God does not need our sacrifices. And I question whether God needs us. He says this, I have no need of a bull from your stall or of goats from your pens, for every animal of the forest is mine and the cattle on a thousand hills. I know every bird in the mountains and the creatures of the field are mine. And any thinking to the contrary, any confusion over this, any thinking to the contrary, God says this, you thought I was altogether like you, but I, not me, God will rebuke you and accuse you to your face. Any thinking to the contrary, any misunderstanding around who needs who in this relationship is unacceptable to God. God does, not, God, does, God does not need us to believe that he needs us, if you see what I mean. He does not need us to believe that he needs us. And this is not intended to sound heartless or unkind. God is simply stating the facts, and I believe more for our benefits than for his he doesn't need our sacrifices or service, and we can't somehow, by favor with him, or ingratiate ourselves into his good books by any attempt to do so. And if, if ever there walked a man 
on the surface of this earth who knew this to be true. It, it was, of course, David's. And we know his story. We know something of his deep despair. And if anyone ever knew that God's was not to be bought, it was David's. If anyone ever knew that his only hope was to throw himself at his father's knees and beg for mercy, it was David. David knew that his God's first passion was for the state of his heart. David knew that his father's first passion was for the state of his heart because that was the only hope for any kind of right relationship. And we know David's plea so well. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise. I think David's not trying to buy his way into a relationship with his father. David's is, I believe, an example that we become over-familiar with or complacent around at our peril. For to do this, for to do so, is to begin to believe that perhaps we are or we could be less than the wretched sinner that he was. My favorite story in the Bible is the faith of the centurion. I often wish that I could have been a fly on the wall for that moment when the elders of the Jews approached Jesus to ask him to heal the soldier servant. It seems to me that these learned teachers, and I wonder how well they knew Psalm 50, it seems to me that these learned teachers somehow got things wrong with Jesus. The very second that they opened their mouths, for they said this, this man deserves, this man deserves to have you do this because he has built a synagogue. Was there, I wonder, just a very small part of Jesus that was tempted to let his eyeballs roll skywards. I, I, really, I really can just see that moment. I really can just see Jesus thinking, uh, there's something about what you've said to me, guys, that's just not quite right here. And yet, what could have been more merciful than the response of our Savior to the centurion himself, to the centurion himself who could only say, I do not deserve. The centurion said, the centurion said, I do not deserve. And I like God's finish to verse 12. Back to Psalm 50. I like God's finish to verse 
12, and I wonder if its implications are clear to you. If I were hungry, I would not tell you. For the world is mine and all that is in it. Everything comes from God. He allows us, invites us to contemplate the meaning of all that is in it. I believe we are to know that whether we like it or not, we are a part of his creation. And I refer you to his opening statements in this psalm about that, about the fact he is, a, he is creator. He asserts that we are part of his creation and he asserts that we belong to him. But this psalm is so much more than an assertion of ownership. It is a cry from God. I refer you to verse 3. God will, he says, I will not, I will not be silent. To his people in verse 4, it's a cry for right relationship. And in verse, and in verse 23, we see clues as to what God wants from right relationship. He wants to show us more and to build right relationship. And he wants us, he wants us to know his salvation mercies. The psalmist, the psalmist is not alone, and we see other other authors making clear for us this point, this point that we flatter ourselves. if we believe for one moment that God has need of us. Paul, servant of Christ, understood this. And it was, it, was, it was sufficiently important for him to make a point of declaring it publicly in Athens. Paul said this, and he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything, because he himself gives all men life and breath and everything else. So, shall I summarize now? Is God saying in Psalm 50, and is Paul then saying to the Athenians and to us, the learned Western world, that there is nothing that we can sacrifice or offer that isn't already his anyway? He is creator, and he's created everyone and everything. What is there that we, hopeless sinners, can offer or bring that is not already his? Is there anything we can offer that he needs? Are all our acts of service or all our sacrifices in vain? Shall we all just give up and go home. No, and I'm pleased to see nobody left at that point. <laughs> Let, let's, not give up. let's not give up on Psalm 50 just yet because God offers hope. Twice, twice in this Psalm, I believe in verses 14 and 23, we are instructed. Sacrifice, thank, offerings. Sacrifice, thank offerings. And this, 
<coughs> this is key. This captures for us the very point from which our God wants us to start in all of our acts of service, in every single sacrifice. This must be at the very inception of our worship of him, and this must necessarily mark out that place from which God will then permit relationship, and that place from which we will then be able to follow that place from which we might follow and glimpse the salvation of God, referred to in verse 23. Our very first sacrifice and our very first starting place is one of thankfulness. For in being thankful first, we start from a place in relationship with God in which we recognize that he gives and we receive, certainly not, and certainly never by any means, the other way around. We are to be thankful, and we are to understand that this must be the core and the very mainstay of our first sacrifice. We must recognize our utter dependence on him for everything. This is our first non-negotiable step in service and in right and in right relationship with our God. John Piper, John Piper, who is he? I don't know. But John, <laughs> John Piper wrote this. He's not here today, is he? <laughs> so, John, so John Piper wrote this, God's, God cannot be served in any way that implies we are meeting his needs. Any servant who tries to get off the divine dole and strike up a manly partnership with his heavenly master is in revolt against the creator. God does not barter. He gives mercy to servants who will have it and the wages of death to those who want. Good service is always and fundamentally receiving mercy, not rendering assistance. And I think that's quite good. Jesus puts it this way. It is more blessed to give than to receive. Funny enough, I'm sure... I'm sure John Piper's a lovely guy, but he took several sentences to say what Jesus said in like this many words. You know, it is more, it is more blessed to give than to receive. I hope that this talk of our hearts being in the right place does not seem abstract, but it seems to me to be important to God, so I suppose that we should make it important to us as well. God is saying that for him, thanksgiving is of the first order, most important, and that, yes, this God does much in Psalm 50 to instruct us and correct us. He asserts his place in creation. He asserts our status in relationship with him. Twice, he calls himself judge. 
And as we have just seen, he makes crystal clear for us that our service of him must start from the place of a thankful heart. In saying, in saying start, of course, I necessarily imply that there is more to follow. And if we look again at Psalm 50, we can see that God's satisfied of a thankful heart is then and on a basis of right relationship and a place to offer more. God concludes Psalm 50 with his own true heart's desire. The instructional and uncompromising tone of the preceding 22 verses, notwithstanding, God signals in verse 23 the way forward that he desires. He who sacrifices thank offerings honors me, and he prepares the way. I may show him the salvation of God. We can please our God simply, simply by being thankful. And we are invited to wonder What could possibly follow? We are, invi- we are invited to consider what might be the way and what might salvation look like. The most exciting thing for me about Psalm 50, I've got to be honest with you, I had to work quite hard at feeling excited about Psalm 50. To be totally honest with you, that's, I hope that doesn't sound ungodly. It was quite hard to begin with, you know, because we all like New Testament and exciting things. To begin with, it was a, a bit hard. But for me, the most exciting thing is the promise of its conclusion and the promise of things to come. And who doesn't like to be promised good things? The salvation of God. And I wonder if Asaph sitting there with his parchment and his pen, whatever they wrote with. I wonder if Asaph could possibly have imagined just what this would look like. I'd like to finish by sharing with you a story from the New Testament. This story means a great deal to me, and I've learned a lot from it this year. I hope that it doesn't seem contrived that I include this. It seems fitting. I'm sure that you will know this story well, and I believe that we can learn something from it about what service of and relationship with our gods looks like. It tells us a lot, I believe, about what pleasing worship looks like. Standing on the shore in the bright morning sunshine. A miraculous catch, as clear to see as it was impossible to comprehend. Simon, I don't doubt, for one second would have been excited and confused in equal measure. He was a seasoned worker and a, and a good fisherman And he was not a fool. I'm sure Simon was a loved 
and a respected man, a fairly normal person trying to make his way in what might have seemed a difficult world. And, and, then, and then Jesus appeared. The teacher, Jesus, who did this, this whole ridiculous thing around insisting that Simon, a man who knew his job, and who was quite clear that there were no fish, Jesus said, Simon, against all, everything, all, all your, everything you know, put your nets out to sea again. And of course, you know the story. The fish and the abundance of catch and the straining nets and the rush to land as many fish as possible. Simon's business is suddenly flush, an instant success story. And Simon can go to markets, the bank or wherever with confidence and he can pay his bills and possibly relax a little bit. His life has just changed in a moment and he has good things to look forward to. And just as, just as suddenly as, as this Jesus has encountered him, Simon knows, Simon, Simon knows that his life has changed forever. And this very moment on the beach captures for us what our God is searching for. What he, what he yearns to find in us. This moment when Jesus looks at Simon and Simon looks at Jesus. Jesus knows, Jesus knows what he is looking for. Simon has no idea what he's looking for. Simon is undone and overwhelmed and he falls on his knees. Go away from me, Lord. I, I am a sinful man. And there I believe we see the heart that God is searching for in us. A broken heart, if you like, that knows it can give nothing and that it can only receive mercy. At this point, and of course you know the story, Jesus could have said anything. At this point, at this point, Simon believed. Simon had no issues with believing. He knew that he had met Jesus and he believed to the, point of his, to the point of collapsing on his knees and confessing his sin. It's a beautiful moment. And I'm not sure, I'm not sure that Simon especially expected what happened next to happen. And we know that Jesus said, follow me. Now, Simon had already had a challenging day, and perhaps even he thought that Jesus wanted another believer. 
Wouldn't it be really good to be a believer in Jesus? But Jesus doesn't especially want believers. And here I think we can see God beginning to show us what salvation and salvation relationship and right relationship looks like. Before choosing to follow Simon, before he chose to follow, Simon knew that his life had changed. Business was sorted, and he would have great stories to tell people about the day he met Jesus on the beach and about how he produced all these fish. And perhaps the story would become a bit more exciting every time he retold it. Simon could have stayed on the beach. Simon could have been a 100% believer and he could have stayed on that beach. He could have been a believer for the rest of his days and died an old and fairly happy man. But Jesus was never to be content with leaving Simon on the beach. Broken-hearted, sinner, believer. Jesus was never to be content with that any more than our God of Psalm 50. Jesus was never to be any more content with that than our God of Psalm 50. Could possibly be content with those misplaced believers who believe that they can buy his favor. Simon's heart in every way was ready for worship and his heart was ready to follow. I don't, th- I don't think Simon knew that following Jesus was going to take him, but he knew he could only answer yes. He had to and could do no other. And this, I believe, this, I believe, is the promise of Psalm 50. I really do believe that 2,000 years ago on a beach in Galilee that a man called Simon chose to follow his Savior. This was his act of worship. And it was all that he could offer to choose to follow. And I believe that this can be our choice and our promise today to follow our Savior Christ. For we can do no other. This is our full act of worship and our service today. This is salvation relationship. And it is the very thing. It's the very thing that God cries out for in Psalm 50. And his yearning for this is never very far from the surface of those lines. I don't think that we will necessarily always know where following Christ will take us. And perhaps this is what it means to be the living sacrifice that Paul writes so eloquently about in Romans 12. And metaphors by the dozen spring to mind about the path less trodden, etc. None of which I dare repeat here for fear of boring my listeners so close to the end now of my sermon. However, I shall and I must, as surely as Simon was on his knees before Christ, confess for anybody who can hear this, that Christ most certainly is my saviour, 
and has been my constant companion now for this many years. And his salvation gift to me has never failed to surprise and his constant companionship and ever-present joy through, through difficult days and joyful ones in equal measure. The best days, the best days that I've ever had have been those days when I have followed. I promised you I wouldn't get too bogged down in the detail of exactly what service looks like or exactly how we serve. Honestly, I think our first, even our most urgent calling is to keep our promises to follow him. This is our first, this is our first and our most important act of worship. Choose to follow, I will follow, I promise to follow. Make that promise, make that promise and be confident that your saviour Work out the rest. You'll do all the details and be confident that Christ will accept you and he'll do for you all the stuff around how that, how that works out exactly. Keep your promises to follow him. Keep your promises to follow Christ and I defy you not to serve as you should. Thank you all very much.